Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have a really interesting conversation for you today with Congressman Richie Torres from the Bronx. We'll get to the congressman in a second. First, thanks for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So, Representative Richie Torres, at 25, became New York City's youngest elected official and the first openly LGBTQ person elected in the Bronx. He represents New York's 15th Congressional District and is a member of the Finance Services Committee and the Select Committee on the Strategic Competition between the U.S. and the Chinese Communist Party. Congressman, welcome into the back room. Honor to be here. So... Before we get into the relevant news issues of the day, uh, I want to just go back a little bit in time because you do have an incredible story. You are Afro-Latino. You were raised by a single mom in the projects in the Bronx. You suffered from asthma as a young person due to mold in your apartment. You came out as gay in high school. You interned at the mayor and attorney general's offices. You went on to NYU but dropped out in your second year due to depression and you uh, dealt with suicidal issues then related to being gay. But then at 25, you ran for city council in the 15th district in the Bronx. You won. Uh, you became the youngest elected official ever in New York City. And then in 2020, you ran for Congress and you also won. You really are a true American success story. Yeah. I, you know, my life has been an improbable journey from public housing in the Bronx to the House of Representatives in Washington, D.C. And uh, you know, mine is a distinctive kind of American dream story. It's not a rags to riches story. It's not a hood to Harvard story. Mm -hmm. uh, I am different from your typical member of Congress. Um, I don't have a net worth of over a million dollars. I don't, I'm not a member of a political dynasty. Uh, I don't have ties to party machines. Uh, I don't even have a college degree. Mm -hmm. But what I lack in traditional qualifications, I make up for in lived experience. And, and I govern from a place of lived experience. I know what it's like to struggle with inequality and poverty. I know what it's like to struggle with food insecurity and housing insecurity. I know what it's like to face suicidal ideation and depression. Uh, you know, these issues are not abstractions to me. These are experiences that I've lived in my own life. Mm -hmm. And that's what motivates me as a public servant. It seems like you were able to get on a track, a positive track, an ambitious track, within a relatively short amount of time from dealing with a lot of personal struggles. I'm just wondering how and when was that moment where you felt strong enough and determined enough and focused enough to know where you wanted to go? Well, you know, more than a decade ago, uh, I found myself at the lowest point in my life. Mm -hmm. I had dropped out of NYU because I was struggling with depression. Uh, there were moments when I thought of taking my own life because I felt as if the world around me had collapsed. I was even hospitalized. And I never thought in my wildest dreams that seven years later, I'd be the youngest elected official in America's largest city, mm -hmm. in the New York City Council. Mm -hmm. And then seven years later, I would become a member of the United States Congress. And so I feel like only in America is a story like mine possible. And when I won my congressional primary in June of 2020, the moment when I knew I was going to be a congressman, 
You know, I publicly said that before I was a congressman or a councilman, I'm first and foremost the son of my mother, Deborah Basila, to whom I owe the greatest debt. Mm -hmm. She is my hero. She is my inspiration. And I have the honor of representing the South Bronx, which is full of single mothers like mine who have struggled and suffered and sacrificed so that their children and grandchildren could have a fighting chance at the American dream. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so my principal identity is that of a son. Of a, of a wise Latina and a powerful mother who sacrificed. Well, they did a good job. She did a good job. She did a great job because she instilled in you a belief in not just the opportunities that are out there, but clearly, more importantly, a, a belief in yourself. And that's the only way anyone can, I guess, overcome environmental struggles and challenges and personal struggles is that you have to believe that there's a world out there that's better for you. And, uh, and clearly you've done that. Look, I, I've got children your age, and so I am extremely impressed with what you've been able to accomplish in such a relatively short amount of time. So my, my hat's off to you. The last question I want to ask you before we shift into some political stuff is with the issue of mental health. Obviously, it's a big subject in this country. There's a lot of people who feel that we don't focus on it enough, that there's not enough resources. People don't take it seriously enough. Where do you stand on where we are in America today? There's a lack of focus on mental health, and I worry that we're living in a time when the next generation of Americans are facing two mental health catastrophes. Mm -hmm. uh, I worry about COVID and the isolation that it imposed on Americans, particularly young Americans, during school time, which should be a period of socialization. Uh, and I worry about the impact of social media. You know, it, it's 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 no accident that Gen Z, which is the first generation to grow up on social media, has among the highest rates of anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And so I worry that social media represents an unprecedented social experiment on the mental health of our young people. And we're only beginning to come to grips with the consequences of both social media and COVID, that perfect storm that has been so corrosive to the mental health of Gen Z. Mm -hmm. It's so, it's so important that I have a, a Gen Z daughter and I, I know exactly what you're talking about and the impact of COVID. And it just seems like um, whether it's regarding insurance, any of the, the established institutions just don't seem to take mental health seriously enough. Look, I, I had to attempt suicide in order to access mental health care. Hmm. Like were it not for the hospitalization, right? I never would have had access to mental health care. And once I did, once I began taking an antidepressant, it reshaped the trajectory of my life. It set me on a path that ultimately led to the United States Congress. Mm. It's incredible. Uh, you have a, it's an incredible story. Um, I live in Manhattan, so I'm not in your district, but I, I, I really came into your sphere of influence uh, on October 7th. And as a, an American Jew, uh, and I got to say, Jews love you. You are a major favorite uh, in our community. and Certainly not all. <laughs> <laughs> not all. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But uh, you have been so outspoken. You have been so passionate. And in my opinion, you have been so spot on. Why is this issue so important to you in the way that it is? I, I guess I would ask, why should it not be important to me? Uh, you know, people, the most commonly asked question is why is a gay black Latino from the Bronx so outspoken against anti-Semitism? And I strongly feel people are asking the wrong question. 
the, the right question is not why I have been outspoken against anti-Semitism. The right question is why have others chosen silence right. amid the deadliest right. day for Jews since the Holocaust? Um, I mean, I was utterly horrified by October 7th. October 7th, to me, is a crime against the Jewish state, a crime against humanity that is so barbaric that it, it cannot be ignored. It cannot go unpunished. Hamas must be brought to justice. Israel has every right to do to Hamas what the U.S. and its allies did to the Nazis in the 20th century and what the United States did to ISIS and al-Qaeda in the 21st century. Um, but even just as traumatic, well, almost just as traumatic as, as October 7th has been the public response. You know, an institution, the New York City Democratic Socialist of America, held a rally on October 8th, cheering and celebrating the cold-blooded murder of Jews in Israel. And so for me, this is not about geopolitics. Mm -hmm. This is not about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which needs to be resolved. This is fundamentally about human decency. It is indecent to blame the victims of terrorism mm -hmm. rather than the terrorists themselves. It is indecent to glorify the terrorism of Hamas as quote-unquote resistance or decolonization or liberation. Mm -hmm. It is indecent to, to tear down images of hostages and promote images of paragliders who gun down young Israelis. Uh, and so I feel like I'm defending not only Israel and the Jewish community, I'm defending human decency. What is at stake is the soul of America. If we as a country cannot bring ourselves to condemn the butchering of babies with moral clarity, mm -hmm. then what are we becoming as a society? Well, I think there is connective tissue between what you're saying and the question that I asked you and others clearly have. And in that sense, it is a lot of Jews right now do hear the deafening silence. And so few people are speaking out the way they should. And that's what makes us wonder when we do see people speaking out, not only do we appreciate it and welcome it, but it's like, why that person? Like, why? What's compelling this individual to do what is so right and obvious for the reasons you just explained, yet so many others can't and won't go there? So I have been traveling to Israel about, for about a decade. I've been thinking and writing and speaking about the subject for almost a decade. Mm -hmm. uh, I will confess to you that I am an unlikely friend of Israel and a friend of the Jewish community. Uh, I grew up in a community that was almost exclusively Latino and African-American. I had no engagement mm -hmm. with the Jewish community. I had no knowledge of Israel. Uh, for most of my life, I could not even define the term Zionist. Uh, uh, and by the time I became a council member, I was still a clean slate. I had no knowledge of Israel, no passion for the subject. But then I was invited by the Jewish Community Relations Council mm -hmm. to go on a delegation to Israel. And I was excited because it was the first time I would have an opportunity to travel abroad. And when I announced that I was going to Israel, the Holy Land, uh, I became the target of overwhelming hatred and vitriol. Uh, there were activists who were accusing me of aiding and abetting apartheid and ethnic cleansing and genocide and betraying my race and sexuality. There were activists who held a rally on the steps of City Hall specifically targeting me. Mm. 
And I remember coming across one activist who had a shirt that read Queers for Palestine, which caught my attention. And at that time I had done more research and I asked the activists, you know, what is your opinion of Hamas? And I honestly thought that she would tell me I support Palestinian rights, but of course I condemn a terrorist organization like Hamas. And instead, she said almost the opposite. I support Hamas because it is fighting for the liberation of the Palestinian people. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, I was in a state of shock. I thought to myself, the fact that an LGBTQ activist could defend a terrorist organization that systematically and savagely murders LGBTQ people, that to me was as clear a sign as any of the utter stupidity and moral bankruptcy and absurdity that BDS has increasingly inflicted on progressive politics. Why do you think that is? Because there's a lot of, I mean, I've had everybody from Jonathan Greenblatt to Gershon Baskin talking about this issue. And there seems to be a consensus that some of the most vitriolic anti-Semitism right now is coming from the progressive left, coming from fellow Jews. Like, how do you explain, how do you explain that? I mean, anti-Semitism comes from both extremes, the far right and the far left. I think of anti-Semitism in three categories, right? Or Jew hatred in three categories, right? There's anti-Judaism, a hatred for Jews as a religious community. Mm -hmm. Anti-Semitism, a hatred for Jews as a race, and anti-Zionism, a hatred for Jews as a nation. And and I find that you know, anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism, or hatred for Jews as a race, comes primarily from the far right, and hatred for Jews as a nation comes primarily from the far left. Uh, so, so those are the dynamics that I observe. And I find that far right anti-Semitism is much more violent, leads to mass shootings like the kind that we saw at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. in, in Pittsburgh. Um, but also, uh, but I think far left anti-Semitism is more culturally influential, mm -hmm. has much greater cultural influence on social media platforms, on college campuses. And so I worry about the, the rising cultural influence of far left anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is, it's a phenomenon. And you know, when you look at the people ripping down hostage posters, I, I don't seem to understand the disconnect that a lot of these folks have because their basic argument is when it comes to Palestinians in, in Gaza, these are innocent Gazans. They didn't ask for war. They're not part of Hamas. They're not part of the government. But yet at the same time, they will rip down a poster of an innocent Israeli. And they're not making any kind of moral or emotional connection between, you know, that poster and the fact that the people on them are also innocent people. They're also not part of the Israeli government. They didn't ask for this war. I don't understand how people can feel one way about Palestinians in Gaza who are innocent and not have that same feeling about Israelis. So when I see them ripping down posters, and I've said this many times, to me it's just basic underlying hatred. They hate Jews. That's the only logical explanation that I could come at. When I observe what is happening on the streets or on college campuses or on social media platforms, it feels like almost everyone is pressuring Israel to enter into a ceasefire with a terrorist organization that butchered its babies. But no one is pressuring Hamas to release the hostages 
or pressuring Hamas to surrender unconditionally. Uh, and so why the double standard? Mm -hmm. That's the question. Well, why are we putting more pressure on Israel than we're putting on Hamas? Mm -hmm. When Hamas, you know, Israel did not start the war. The war was imposed upon Israel by the barbaric anti-Semitism of Hamas. Now, I want to be clear. There's nothing inherently anti-Semitic about calling for a ceasefire. One, mm -hmm. one could call for a ceasefire based on pacifism, based on a belief that there should be no war, however naive, right? Um, you, you know, during the rally, during the march for Israel, I, I publicly said, you know, not everyone who wants a ceasefire wants Israel to cease to exist. Right. But everyone who wants Israel to cease to exist wants a ceasefire. Right. That's a great distinction. The Islamic Republic of Iran wants a ceasefire. Mm -hmm. Hezbollah wants a ceasefire. Mm -hmm. There is no greater supporter of a ceasefire than Hamas. Why? Because a ceasefire, and Hamas has no concern for Palestinian life, which it happily uses as a tool or as a human shield. Hamas supports a ceasefire because a ceasefire would enable Hamas to remain in power, regroup, and rearm so that it could launch an even deadlier terrorist attack than what we saw on October 7th. Mm -hmm. And we know this because Hamas openly admits it unapologetically. Yeah. Yeah. The leadership of Hamas has said that October 7th is just a rehearsal. It is not a one-time event. There will be a second and a third and a fourth that Hamas is committed to annihilating every Jew in Israel until the Jewish state itself is annihilated. The word annihilation comes directly mm -hmm. yeah, look, from we, the leadership of Hamas. I spoke with Gershon Baskin on this show, and for 18 years he was a, a negotiator with Ghazi Hamad, who is the the uh, Hamas uh, official who said what you said. He's the one who publicly said, we're going to do this over and over and over again. And, and Baskin cut off ties with him for the first time in 18 years because he felt that, that Hamad had crossed a very important line of humanity and that he couldn't come back from that. And Gershon Baskin was the guy who negotiated the release of, in 2012, of uh, the IDF soldier, Galit Shalit. But, you know, when you talk to protesters and you see them, they, it seems like they don't even, they don't know what the Chinese, the Ch China does to the Uyghurs. They're not concerned about Syrian atrocities. They're not concerned about Sudan and Darfur. It just seems like this is an easy bandwagon to hop on, especially if you kind of approach the conversation with a baseline of anti-Semitism. Whether it's marching in the streets, saying from the river to the sea, or ripping down hostage posters, and not really caring about any other similar cause that they should be caring about if they really were genuine, I, I, I can't escape coming back to the underlying anti-Semitism and hatred of Jews. Nothing else explains this, this rage that you see in people today. Look, I saw the anti-Semitism of the far left of the DSA long before October 7th. Mm -hmm. Back in August of 2020, the New York City Democratic Socialists of America sent out a questionnaire to city council candidates. And the questionnaire was about 15 pages. Mm -hmm. The final page was a foreign policy section because the New York City Council plays a major role in setting American foreign policy. Mm -hmm. I mean that jokingly. And there were only two questions in the foreign policy section. Question number one, do you pledge never to travel to Israel if elected to the city council? Mm -hmm. Question number two, do you pledge to support the BDS movement, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel? So in the moral framework of the DSA, it is permissible to travel to China which is committing genocide against 
more than a million Uyghur Muslims mm -hmm. to travel to Russia, which has invaded a sovereign nation state like Ukraine, to travel to Iran, which is the leading sponsor of terrorism in the world, to travel to Myanmar, which has ethnically cleansed Rohingya Muslims, mm -hmm. to travel to North Korea, which is a totalitarian state, but travel to the world's only Jewish state is strictly forbidden. If that is not evidence of anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. then I'm not sure what would be. Mm -hmm. And the ultimate manifestation of anti-Zionism as anti-Semitism is October 7th, is the genocidal mission of Hamas. Well, speaking of genocide, uh, my last question to you is about the testimony in Congress this week of the presidents of MIT, UPenn, and Harvard which a lot of people found just absolutely unacceptable and reprehensible. And, and they were all walking it back now and issuing really embarrassing statements. How shocked were you when you saw that, that presidents of Ivy League institutions struggled so much to simply say, chanting about genocide against Jews is not only reprehensible, but is it against our university's policies and those who commit it will be punished. Well, I found the testimony to be shocking to the conscience, but not surprising, given what we know about the campus culture of silence and indifference and cowardice mm -hmm. on the subject of anti-Semitism. If, you know, if you asked whether a genocide of Jews constitutes harassment, most Americans would immediately, unhesitatingly, say yes, of course, mm -hmm. without equivocating, without obfuscating, without hesitating. The presidents of Harvard and UPenn state that it's context-dependent, a coldly legalistic answer. And it serves as a reminder that these people are moral failures on the subject of anti-Semitism, and that the humanity of our academics seems increasingly impoverished rather than enriched by education. That there's something endemic to modern higher education that causes people to lose their moral common sense. You know, I wrote on Twitter that when I saw, you know, after witnessing the moral bankruptcy of the UPenn and Harvard presidents, I've never been prouder in my life to be a college dropout. <laughs> I saw that. You know, like most Americans, what I lack in formal education, I make up for in moral common sense and moral clarity. Uh, and I would rather have moral clarity than have the failed moral leadership that passes for higher education on college campuses. Well, that failed moral clarity and moral leadership on college campuses, in large part, I think, has to do with a lot of what we're seeing, especially from young people today, in terms of having no sense of context or nuance or history when they talk about issues that are so critical, like war and anti-Semitism and terrorism, and is a failure of a very, very important institution. Um, I could talk to you for hours. I do hope you'll come back and continue this conversation. There's so many other subjects I would have loved to get into with you, but uh, you're helping run this country, and <laughs> I know you got a busy day ahead of you. But I do sure. appreciate you coming on, and uh, thanks for chatting. Absolutely. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. 
please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards and have a great week. Thank you.